Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at Southern Labor SA. I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to Working History, a podcast produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Blaine Roberts and Ethan J. Keitel. Both are professors of history at California State University, Fresno. Today we're discussing their co-authored book, Denmark Vesey's Garden, Slavery and Memory in the Cradle of the Confederacy, published by the New Press. Blaine Roberts and Ethan Keitel, welcome to Working History. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. What was your motivation for writing Denmark Vesey's Garden? And what gap do you see the book filling in the historical narrative? Well, our motivation really starts with some personal experiences that we had back in the mid-2000s. Um, Ethan and I both got our PhDs at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, and we finished in 2004, 2005. He was 2004, I was 05. And our first jobs were in Charleston, South Carolina. So in uh, the summer of 2005, it was time for us to go look for a place to live in Charleston. So we left Chapel Hill for a weekend trip. I uh, got to Charleston and had a list of apartments to look at. It turned out that the first apartment on our list was the basement of a really beautiful antebellum home. And mm -hmm. if you've been to Charleston before, you know what we're talking about. It's a really stunning city. Right. Um, so we rang the doorbell and the homeowner welcomed us inside this basement unit. And we were looking at it, walking around and, you know, just kind of making small talk as you do. Uh, talking about and asking questions about the historical construction of the home and who the owners were before the Civil War. Mm -hmm. and, at, and at one point, um, I said, well, how would this space that we're looking at, how would this have been used by the original owners? And the homeowner said, well, this would have been the workspace of the servants. Mm. And I kind of instinctively replied, you know, I just got my PhD in history. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> She's feeling kind of full of herself. Right, I maybe was a little full of myself. But I kind of instinctively replied, oh, you mean the workspace of the slaves. Mm -hmm. And then she countered, no, the servants. And she said, there's no evidence in the historical record that they weren't paid. Oh. Which is a really interesting uh, grammatical construction, sure. if you will. Yeah. <laughs> And it pregnant double negative. Yeah, it's yeah. A double negative and with full of meaning. It really erased the history of the enslaved laborers who in fact worked at that home. Uh, some quick census data, you know, research revealed that there were enslaved laborers in that house. And what we ended up realizing is that that was a really um, 
kind of interesting introduction to Charleston, specifically to how many white Charlestonians remembered and misremembered slavery in their city, the mm-hmm. history of slavery in their city. So we ended up moving to the city. We lived there for two years and we had a lot of experiences like that. We went on a lot of historical tours because people love to visit the city yeah. and we would go on carriage rides and walking tours. And we kept having similar kinds of conversations where white Charlestonians were ignoring slavery or remembering it in a way that really framed it as a benign, benevolent institution. Mm -hmm. So this was really the starting point for our interest in this subject. Yeah, so in some ways we kind of backed into it. Um, uh, Unlike a lot of, I think, research topics where you either either in your graduate school and you, you're forced to pick something um, uh, before you run out of time, or you kind of come upon a, a, a subject uh, because you've been uh, actively researching something that's related to it, or you're really engaged with historical historiographical debates and you want to sort of figure something out. We, we sort of started um, on this project with our own personal experience right. and then worked backwards um, uh, and uh, started to explore you know, uh, the, the literature on, on this topic and ultimately decided uh, and realized that there wasn't really a book that dug into the long history of the memory of slavery uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, or really the long history of the memory of slavery uh, in the United States. Um, and, and so that's kind of what we set about doing, but, but um, it took us a while to, to figure that out. Uh, ultimately, we, uh, as we dug into this, we realized that there wasn't just, uh, that there were two traditions of memory when it comes to uh, slavery in Charleston, um, what we call the whitewashed memory and the unvarnished memory of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whitewashed memory is kind of um, uh, a tradition of remembering that, that Blaine is, is talking about, and it's still very prominent in certain circles in Charleston. And it's a tradition that downplays the importance of slavery uh, to the history of Charleston, to the history of South Carolina, to the history of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a tradition, the whitewashed memory is a tradition that argues that slavery didn't cause the Civil War, that it didn't have much to do with the Civil War. It's also a tradition um, uh, that suggests that slavery was benign, um, maybe even a, a, a beneficial or civilizing thing for African Americans. Mm-hmm. And this was a, tr- a tradition that was forged by former slave owners and their descendants, but continued on and on and on, and, and certainly still um, uh, influences the way slavery is talked about or not talked about in Charleston mm-hmm. uh, today. Uh, so we started digging into that. But one of the things we discovered is over the last 150 years since the end of the Civil War, there's also been a second tradition, um, what we call the unvarnished memory of mm-hmm. slavery. This is a tradition um, that uh, was forged by former slaves, their descendants and some white allies. Uh, and it argues that slavery indeed was central to the history of Charleston, the history of South Carolina, to the history of the United States. Uh, that slavery was a, a brutal, inhumane institution, something rooted in violence, uh, and that slavery, in fact, did cause the Civil War, and that we must remember all of these things. And so ultimately, as we pushed into this story, we, just, we, we found that there was a, for the last 150 years in Charleston, there's been a battle between these two memory traditions. And I think it's probably important for us to emphasize that it's the unvarnished memory of slavery that is actually rooted and reflected in the historical record. Right. 
Um, you know, we, we, ha we have the evidence that proves that slavery was central to the history of South Carolina and the wealth of white South Carolinians. It dovetails with the scholarship on slavery. That's right. right. Uh -huh. So we always feel, um, you know, many listeners will know that, but it's really important to, to emphasize it and important to emphasize that the whitewashed memory really trucks in myth. Um, and just to kind of follow up on your, your question about what gap we yeah. see mm -hmm. this book filling. So as Ethan said, we really realized that there was no book that explores the long history of how slavery has been remembered. Um, and I think another thing that kind of uh, motivated us was to decenter the memory of the Civil War a mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. So much of the literature in terms of memory studies that focus on the South, really focuses on how the war itself has been remembered. Mm -hmm. And it's not that we're not interested in that question. Um, how we talk a lot about it. We do we talk a lot about it <laughs> right. in the book. But our focus is really on the memory of slavery, the institution of slavery itself. Um, and so that, I think, is So we see that as a subset. Civil War memory, in some ways, is a yeah. subset of the memory of slavery. Right. Uh -huh. and and in some ways, because a lot of the historiography of civil of um, memory studies in the South, at least, is focused on the 50 years after the Civil War, mm -hmm. um, uh, that question, um, the Civil War and how it's remembered, has been the dominant sort of framework. Uh, and so we think our longer time span, 150 years, has it, uh, provides a, a, a different angle in and you can learn different things. You can see some important continuities mm -hmm. um, uh, to the present day, to um, what's going on on, say, historic uh, plantations and in, in modern historical tourism in places like Charleston, mm -hmm. um, but also to the debates um, over how we're going to remember slavery, over how we're going to um, uh, deal with Confederate monuments. Um, because we span such a, a, a long uh, period of time, we're, we're able to make connections and to, to unpack the ways in which, say, you know, current um, uh, defacement and vandalism of monuments is, is you, you might think this is a brand new story, but in fact, it was something that was going on over 100 years ago mm -hmm. in Charleston with the Calhoun Monument. So, so we can sort of tell uh, a broader story and one that speaks not just to historical debates, but also contemporary concerns. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's walk back just slightly. Um, and it, maybe you could give our readers, uh, our readers, sorry, our uh, <laughs> listeners, just a, a, a sense um, in broad brushstrokes, what was the history of slavery in South Carolina and more specifically to Charleston? What was the economy of South Carolina like? Where does slavery fit into it? And then more specifically to, to Charleston, why, how and why was that really a, a capital city of slavery in the United States in the antebellum period? I'll try to do this somewhat succinctly. Uh, so South Carolina, maybe one of the distinctive things is, you know, it's founded in the late 1600s as an English colony. And un unlike other uh, southern colonies that came before it, say Maryland uh, or Virginia, uh, it was a slave society from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, that is, slaves um, were central to its economy um, from the very start, they didn't sort of back into slavery like happens in Virginia over the course of 50 or 60 years as slaves um, replace indentured servants. Mm -hmm. uh, by the early, by the second uh, decade of the 1700s, uh, Charleston and South Carolina more generally already had a black majority. 
and that was a black and enslaved majority. Mm -hmm. And most of those enslaved people um, in South, South Carolina were working in the rice industry. That, that becomes its staple crop. Mm -hmm. um, uh, African slaves um, are working uh, in rice plantations. Some African slaves are actually um, white masters are drawing on some knowledge that African slaves have of rice cultivation that they brought with them from uh, West Africa. Uh, but rice and then eventually indigo become the chief crops, at least in the 1700s. Eventually, cotton um, would join that for the state of South Carolina by the 1800s um, as you, you have the, the growth of, of king cotton. But early on, it was rice and it was this black and enslaved majority in Charleston and in South Carolina that's doing the bulk of the labor. And of course, it's really grueling labor, mm -hmm. um, particularly rice. Yeah, right. Rice was a, uh, a you know remarkably... Yeah, brutal labor regime um, was established there in low country, South Carolina. Um, most rice plantations were low lying swampy areas. You'd have to be enslaved laborers would be working in, you know, humid, hot summer months on their knees in, in you know, disease infested swampy areas. Um, the mortality rates um, uh, were extraordinarily high. Certainly, when compared to say uh, Virginia in the 18th century, where Virginia become Virginia enslaved populations become self-reproducing, mm -hmm. that's not the case in Low Country, South Carolina. Um, they they and as a result, um, Charleston uh, very pretty soon in the uh, 1700s becomes uh, the center in the United States or in the colonies that would become the United States of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, they had to bring in more and more laborers because they couldn't um, they couldn't survive the, br the brutality. Yeah. So the other reason that Charleston is so important in terms of the history of slavery in the United States is that close to 50 percent of the slaves that were brought into what became the United States came through Charleston and, and the surrounding sea islands. Mm -hmm. So that makes it just really central in terms of the history of slavery in North America. We call the city the capital of American slavery. That's right, mm -hmm. the capital of American slavery. So not only is it this important hub for the transatlantic slave trade, it also becomes really central to the domestic slave trade uh, within the colonies in the United States, um, particularly as slaves are sold into the Deep South, as the cotton empire spreads into the Deep South. The domestic markets in Charleston were just thriving. Uh, so that's another reason that we argue that Charleston was the capital of American slavery. And then beyond just the, the kind of realities of the numbers of people who came in and were sold, Charleston became the ideological epicenter, really, of the defense of slavery as an institution in the antebellum era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, and I would say Charleston and South Carolina, yeah. more generally, it was South Carolina statesmen like John Calhoun, um, who were leading the, the fight against the growing abolitionist movement in the North in the 1830s and 1840s, were reframing how um, uh, American slaveholders talked about slavery. A lot of a lot of slaveholders, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and the founding fathers, uh, in the revolutionary generation, uh, were somewhat embarrassed about slavery. They would talk about it as a necessary evil. Um, Calhoun uh, and his colleagues reframed it and, and argued that it was instead a positive good. It was something that helped slaveholders. It was some, something that helped the enslaved. Um, and they saw this as a as sort of a campaign to convince the country that, that slavery should not be done away with. 
it's no surprise then that South Carolina and Charleston become the epicenter of the secessionist movement mm-hmm. uh, in the 1850s, a movement that ultimately breaks apart the United States in defense of slavery. Um, and it's no surprise that Charleston is the host of the South Carolina Secession Convention, the first uh, convention that takes a state out of um, the United States. And then, of course, Charleston is the site of the first battle of the Civil War, the, the shelling of Fort Sumter in April of 1861. So in, in, in an important way, it's no coincidence that the capital of American slavery became the cradle of the Confederacy. Sure. You know, I think that that's mm-hmm. a really good, good way to think about it. Slavery was so central to this location that, of course, <laughs> it became the place where the first vote for secession was registered and where the war actually began. Right. So what happens to Charleston in the wake of the Civil War and emancipation? Obviously, this, you know, sort of throws the the city into chaos in many ways. Um, the labor system that had supported the the state and the and the economy. So so what happens? You know, what what is what is civil war? What is emancipation like? And then what happens when we, you know, start to talk about reconstruction there? Okay. Yeah, well, so the war, of course, just completely decimates the city. Right. And in the, the final months of the war, uh, the Union Army comes in. There are thousands of newly liberated slaves who were already living in the city or who come into the city from the surrounding plantation plantations on the um, sea islands around the city. And so the city becomes a really transformed place as the old regime literally is just crumbling Mm -hmm. um, in, you know, February, March and April of 1865. And it was during this period, the spring of 1865, that really the first attempts to preserve the unvarnished memory of slavery are really undertaken by newly liberated slaves. And we end up calling this period the year of Jubilee mm-hmm. in our book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the the, yeah, the real striking things um, we discovered as we dug into this story was the number, the very public celebrations, commemorations that enslaved, formerly enslaved people, uh, newly free people were putting on uh, in Charleston in this uh, newly emancipated and union-occupied City, um, probably the one that, that we tend to, um, I think, zero in on and remember the most is what we call the Slavery is Dead Parade, which uh, takes place on March 21st, 1865. I remember that date because it happens to be my birthday. Um, <laughs> I'm sure of that one. Um, but it was, you know, it was this huge parade. Um, newspaper reports um, suggest that between four and 10,000 people uh, took part in it. Uh, and it was led by um, organized by uh, not the Union Army, not the occupying Union force, but by um, Charleston freed people. Um, they marched all the way up and down through the city, you know, mile and a half, two mile long parade. And it features a whole bunch of sort of remarkable, I don't know, tableaus, mm-hmm. um, uh, elements uh, that I think are striking. One, of course, is a, a funeral per- procession for slavery. That's why we call it the Slavery is Dead Parade. Uh, and that is um, there was a huge long, a big hearse that had a giant coffin on it and, and hanging from the coffin were, was a sign that said slavery is dead. So they were, you know, they're putting on a funeral procession for the end of slavery. Um, uh, it also featured um, uh, a mock slave auction. And that really, to me, is the most striking, I think, to us is the, is the most striking uh, element. There was a, a mule drawn cart um, uh, was was carrying 
a, a mock slave auctioneer himself, a, a former slave, um, as well as four people who were supposed to be um, in, in an imitation fashion being put up for auction. Mm. Um, and uh, they, they themselves, according to newspaper reports, had all been auctioned off at one point in their lives. And, and so you have this sort of s- bizarre scene in which this um, former slave is pretending to be an auctioneer and he's calling out, you know, who will bid on this slave? Who will bid $50, $100 for this cook? Uh, and perhaps the most striking thing, um, uh, at least according to newspaper reports, which is what we, you know, where we get our information um, uh, about this from, is that the audience, some were laughing at it and cheering and, and sort of took it as, as all, all in good fun. But, but many others in the crowd, particular, uh, particularly freed women um, who had watched their children be sold away, watched their spouses be sold away, um, started crying out, give me, you know, give me back my children, give me mm-hmm. back my children. We're overwhelmed with emotion. And so one of the things that that underscored for us was that, that this uh, year of Jubilee and these celebrations were celebrations. Mm-hmm. But they were also um, uh, meant uh, as reminders of the brutal realities of slavery. Enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, did not want to let um, others forget the pain um, uh, of bondage. And so that was you know, one of these striking early examples of the unvarnished memory of slavery that they wanted to put in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. And then um, starting the same year and for the next several decades, you know, we start to enter reconstruction now mm-hmm. when, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Union Army is there, the federal government has a, a degree of power in the state and the region as, as a whole. And of course, African-Americans pretty quickly assume political power in the city and the state as well. And this is really critical for making sure that this unvarnished memory remains the public memory throughout this period. So one of the the other ways in which you can see this unvarnished memory being preserved uh, in the public sphere would be on January the 1st every year and July the 4th every year. Mm -hmm. January the 1st, of course, was the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And so every year in Charleston, free people would gather down at the Battery, which is this area in southern Charleston, the very kind of base of the peninsula, to celebrate the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation on January the 1st. Mm -hmm. And they would read the Emancipation uh, over time as you get the amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments being passed and ratified, they would read those amendments out loud. Mm-hmm. They would read speeches by prominent abolitionists Frederick like Frederick Douglass, really underscoring the fact that they had not wanted to be enslaved right. <laughs> and that emancipation was a good thing. Uh, same thing on July the 4th. Uh, free people in Charleston celebrated it as a day of their freedom. Right. And this is true across the South. Across mm-hmm. the South. That's mm-hmm. right. Some really big celebrations in Charleston. What's interesting about the 4th of July is that white Southerners during these years, in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, did not celebrate July Fourth. Huh. They really saw it as an African-American holiday because African-Americans were very vocal about how they they did indeed embrace this day as a celebration of their freedom. Yeah. Right. So what happens during the early years of the Jim Crow South? The memory of slavery in many ways becomes a very central terrain of conflict. So what what is happening there? And then what is the result of that in terms of what the dominant narrative about slavery becomes? 
Well, the first thing that happens is as reconstruction is uh, forcibly ended through force of uh, violence um, by former Confederates um, who style themselves redeemers and want to just undermine um, political power that African-Americans had as part of the Republican Party um, that had controlled states like South Carolina for the better part of the 1870s. As that political power wanes, their ability, the ability of um, this unvarnished memory, African-Americans' uh, unvarnished memory of slavery to uh, find a space in public fades away. Mm -hmm. um, it's really driven out. There are, there are, for instance, um, some of these uh, Emancipation Day um, uh, and Fourth of July celebrations uh, that happen in Charleston in in public spaces um, like White Point Garden, um, this park at the Battery that Blaine was talking about. Uh, by the 1880s, Charlestonians have started white Charlestonians. Um, have to have taken back political power, start passing measures forbidding um, African-Americans from holding those celebrations mm -hmm. in those public spaces, pushing mm -hmm. them off the peninsula and uh, eventually um, entirely out of Charleston. Um, uh, so one thing they do is they start to shut down um, black uh, demonstrations that uh, of the, the unvarnished memory. At the mm -hmm. same time, they start um, funneling money in and uh, to different interpretations of the memory of slavery, um, uh, say the Calhoun Monument. Mm -hmm. um, and the city um, uh, erects two massive monuments um, to John C. Calhoun, the great defender of slavery, um, one in the 1880s, a second larger one that replaces it in the 1890s. And this is part of a, a larger spate of Confederate and pro-slavery commemoration that, that happens all across uh, the country as the lost cause, the, a Southern defense of the Civil War um, becomes ascendant um, and, and serves as a sort of uh, reinforcement of the Jim Crow white supremacy political campaign that's, that's being enacted across the South at the same time. Yeah, and, and so you can see this happening very clearly in Charleston. The two Calhoun monuments are a great example of it. I mean, here white Charlestonians have erected <laughs> this first and then the subsequent monument to a man who said that slavery was a positive good. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the lost cause, which Ethan just mentioned, you know, this is the interpretation of the war, uh, which says many things, but one of which, of course, was that the slavery that slavery did not cause mm -hmm. the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Charleston became a real center uh, in terms of producing that narrative. The local newspaper, the news and courier, the editors there, two back-to-back -back editors, were very invested in pushing this narrative in the paper. And the paper had a very wide readership, uh, not just in the city, but throughout the state. So one of the things that we... we throughout the South. Yeah. One of the things we argue in the book is that in, in, a, in a way, Charleston has been underappreciated as a place where the lost cause narrative was produced. In addition to the News and Courier, there were very active chapters of the United Confederate Veterans, Sons of Confederate Veterans, and particularly United Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. There were elite white Charleston women who were UDC members who were really critical, not just in the city and the state, but in the nation as a whole, in terms of pushing this lost cause narrative and making sure, for example, that textbooks that were used in Charleston and South Carolina classrooms and really classrooms across the country, that these textbooks 
pewed the lost cause line and really kind of towed that line. Mm -hmm. And then and then to add to this story, what makes I think Charleston specifically maybe so interesting um, in this rise of the whitewashed memory of slavery is that in the early 20th century, it uh, refashions itself as a, a mecca of historical tourism. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's, it starts calling itself America's most historic city. Um, it starts being a place that markets itself as uh, entryway back into time, um, uh, a way to, to, to see the American past. But what's distinctive about it is it de-emphasizes in the narratives it, it provides for tourists in the sort of sites that it features. Um, uh, they tend to whitewash slavery to de-emphasize it or when they do talk about it at all to talk about it as this benign or beneficial institution. Um, so uh, it, a, a sort of different way to perpetuate this, this whitewashed memory of slavery. And to get back to uh, part of your question, you were asking about how, you know, can we see some conflict mm -hmm. in this early period? So um, the answer is yes. And I think it's important to emphasize that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we do, we did see some pushback in the historical record on the part of African-Americans saying this whitewashed memory is offensive and we don't think that it should be the dominant memory. And really the best place to look for that is with is to African-American reaction to those Calhoun monuments that we mm -hmm. mentioned. Mm -hmm. The first one was erected in 1887 and then the second one in 1896. Uh, as soon as that one in 1887 was erected by a group of elite white Charleston women, African-Americans uh, essentially undertook what we call a campaign of guerrilla vandalism against mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. They res deeply resented the fact that it had been erected in the center of the city. Uh, it's in Marion Square. And they threw things at it. Rocks, uh, bricks. Uh, we even have some evidence of a, a young boy shooting a pistol at it. Mm -hmm. And we have from memoirs and oral histories evidence of this and people saying we did this because we felt like white Charlestonians had erected this statue to tell us that we should still be slaves. Right. And so there's a lot of evidence of this. And then the, the women who erected that statue in 1887 decided uh, in the mid-1890s that they wanted to replace the original one. They officially said that they had never liked the original statue on aesthetic grounds. But we have every reason to believe that one of their motivations for putting up this new statue is that they wanted to raise Calhoun higher to get him out of harm's way. Okay. Because if you look at the second statue... It is absurdly, absurdly tall. tall. Right. <laughs> it's, it's 120 feet or something in yeah. the air. And um, so was the other one just sort of beaten up? Like, could you could you physically see when tourists would come and go through Charleston? Would it would the old monument have been raggedy? Uh, I don't think it'd be fair to say it would be raggedy. Uh, there are definitely reports where of Charlestonians waking up to find it having been whitewashed with paint. Okay. Uh -huh. um, uh, uh, and certainly the... The uh, oral history, um, the memories of some African-Americans who grew up in that period would say that they would do anything they had, uh, to do anything they could to chip it up, to, to, to throw stuff at it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, don't know have, if that would have been visible. Yeah, I've never, it, it itself was fairly big. Yeah, it was sure. 40, right. 50 feet in, in, in the air. Um, uh, 
But there is ample evidence that that there was vandalism. There's also ample evidence that the city officially worried about that and did all sorts of things to protect both the first and the second. Um, we found evidence that that well after the second one went up into as late as the 1940s, yeah. um, there were people who uh, the city was worried about vandalism to it um, by uh, various. They called them night prowlers. Night prowlers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they they yeah. installed you know kind of a defensive. System. Lighting system right. and a fence, and they never came out and said exactly who was vandalizing it. But it's pretty clear if you look at the oral histories that were done with African Americans who lived during that period. Right. So let's fast forward to the the era of the civil rights movement, kind of following on from the 1940s and into the 50s and 60s. This is a moment when that movement will be part of fundamentally altering the Jim Crow status quo. And so I think a question that is is interesting to think about, and maybe you could talk about this a little bit um, for our listeners, is how the Civil War does or doesn't shift the way that slavery, um, the lost cause, all the things you've been talking about, are remembered in Charleston and South Carolina and, and more widely. Sure. Well, the civil rights movement uh, does have a pretty profound uh, impact on the memory of slavery in Charleston. I mean, one of the things that happens during Jim Crow, which we just talked about, you know, we talked about how the whitewashed memory became the predominant public memory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happens to the unvarnished memory, it's not that it went away. It's simply that it was pushed into different venues. Mm -hmm. And so what we found over the course of our research is that you can see the unvarnished memory being preserved in families. Mm-hmm. You know, families talking about the history of slavery their, of their ancestors. You could see it being preserved in churches. Mm-hmm. You know, people talking about it uh, in their congregations. You could see it being preserved in segregated schools, which is one of the many ironies of the Jim Crow South. You know, we have white Southerners here imposing this very racist white supremacist regime and denying black Southerners adequate resources in many cases for their schools. But what happens in these schools is that you do find teachers, for example, teaching about the history of slavery. So these, this, it, it existed during Jim Crow, but it was really out of the public eye. Right. So the, one of the many reasons that the civil rights movement is important is because it changes the political landscape in a place like Charleston to uh, allow black Charlestonians to bring these memories back out into the public again. So, uh, for example, we see um, an attorney, an African-American attorney in the city who is a member of the NAACP, writing the school board in the 50s and saying, it's time for us to do more to focus on African-American history in the school system, you know, Mm -hmm. this kind of thing. Um, Really the best place to see the changing landscape would be when the civil rights struggle really arrives in full force in the city and you see active protests and boycotts on city streets. That's when you can see um, civil rights protesters really turning to the memory of slavery to try to use it as a source of power in their contemporary struggle. So one great example would be in 1963, there was a really um, intense period of civil rights activism in the city, lots of boycotts 
of downtown businesses, for example, because they weren't serving African-American patrons, they were not employing African-Americans. And so protesters on the streets uh, were singing freedom songs. Mm -hmm. And among the kind of antecedents that they were pulling from were slave spirituals. Mm. Slave spirituals, of course, have been very big in the area. Slave spirituals uh, were all about the kind of torment of bondage and finding the power and the strength to overcome slavery. So civil rights protesters here in 1963 take some of those songs and use them to inspire their contemporary struggle. Say, we will overcome segregation in the same way that our ancestors overcame slavery. Yeah, and then it, to fast forward a little bit more, by by the 1970s, as uh, sort of civil rights uh, activism sort of starts to pay benefits um, politically as African Americans um, and what uh, Charleston start to or have the right to vote, for instance, and are actively voting and, and in some ways, uh, cases are electing civil rights activists um, to, say, city council, you start to see efforts to um, push uh, black history, uh, the history of slavery kind of into the public sphere to rename schools, for instance, after mm-hmm. uh, African-American heroes um, from the state like Robert Smalls um, or uh, Denmark Vesey, who becomes um, a, a sort of central and had long been a controver- controversial figure in Charleston. There's efforts by the mid 70s. Um, some argue that that local schools should be named after him. Others suggest that statues should be erected to him. And eventually uh, the city actually commissions a painting of Denmark VC um, to hang um, in a prominent uh, public auditorium. Uh, this was wildly controversial because Denmark VC was still then and remains a wildly controversial person. Um, probably I should tell you who he was. Yeah, but. let's maybe let's maybe do that. I mean, you know, in the title, why why who sure. was he and why the title invite you know invoke him in the title of your book? Yeah. All right, yeah. sir. Well, I'll, maybe I'll I'll say a little bit about VC and, and then let Blaine tell you about okay. why why we talk about him in okay, our book. Sure. But I mean, one of the things. Our book is, after all, named Denmark Vesey's Garden. So one of the first questions we often get is, well, you know, is this a biography of this person? Who is this person? And and so our book is not that, although in some ways we sort of discovered towards the end of writing it that he, that Denmark Vesey, um, who was the would-be leader of a slave rebellion uh, in Charleston, um, that that he was, uh, you know, a critical figure throughout our book, even if we we didn't make him the central character in it. So, So Vesey was born a slave. Um, uh, he grew up a, a slave in Charleston, uh, but then in a sort of remarkable turn of events, right around the year 1800, um, uh, VC won the lottery, won a city lottery, he won a, a, a decent amount of money, and he was able to purchase his freedom using that money. Hmm. He, he was unable to purchase the, the freedom of his children uh, or his wife, uh, and this fact frustrated him, as did living under sort of the repressive white supremacist regime in in Charleston. And so by the early 1820s, he and several co-conspirators decided that they were going to um, lead a enormous slave insurrection. Uh, It was to take place on Bastille Day, July 14th, 1822. Uh, But before it could take place, it was foiled. Um, Local officials got word uh, that this was underway. They quickly rounded up VZ and co-conspirators. 